Our second scripture is Luke 22, verses 14 through 27. When the hour came, Jesus took his place at the table and the apostles with him. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Then he took a cup and after giving thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Then he took a loaf of bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And he did the same with the cup after supper saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But see, the one who betrays me is with me and his hand is on this table. For the human one is going as it has been determined, but woe to that one by whom he is betrayed. Then they began to ask each other which one of them it could be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. But he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lorded over them, and those whose authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, the greatest among you must become the youngest, and the leader like one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. We celebrate the written word of Scripture. We celebrate the living word, Christ among us. Please pray with me. Holy God, as we gather us in this place and at this table, may you quiet our hearts so that we can attune our spirits to your spirit, so that in the hearing of the word we might be transformed um, to live your living word to bless the Lord. So those words of scripture, the words of the Last Supper that Maureen just read, they're familiar to us. That story the Last Supper stolen in three of the Gospels and the Apostle Paul recounts the communion words in his letters. We say and hear these words at least once a month on these first Sundays when we gather for communion. Those words we said together just a while ago, this is my body, this is my life, month after month, year after year. Part of the power of sacred words said again and again is that those words can over time seep into our bones and become a part of us. These last supper words, just think of what we did together just a few moments ago, how they have become a part of us. Something I've noticed with familiar words spoken and heard over and over as we get used to them, but then, then you hear them every once in a while, and sometimes a word or a phrase stands out as if it were new. And I go, hmm, I never thought of that. As a kid, I was fixated on the words when the cup is offered, and they sound more like 
King James in verse 8, drink ye all of it. I heard that as a kid as drink all of it. All being the juice in the cup. Drink every last drop. It was well into my adulthood, maybe even at seminary, when I heard the word yet again and thought, oh, it's drink ye all of it. Drink this, all of you, that cup is for all of us, everyone. Drink ye all of this cup, or as I rephrase it, just to be clear, drink all of you. Over the past year or so, I've been particularly drawn to those very first words on the night before we died. The words that come before those familiar words about bread and cup, the words that set the scene, that speak the context. On the night before he died, Jesus gathered his friends at the table on this. This, this is what he did on the night before he died. With that context in mind, the rest of the words have become for me all the more tender, all the more urgent, all the more deeply, deeply loving. On the night before he died, Jesus gathered his friends at a table, knowing what the next day would hold, fully present that night in his experience of his own mortality. And this, this is what he shared with them. There's this book you may have heard of, Being Mortal. By Atul Gawande. Atul Gawande has had a couple of bestsellers out there. He's a physician. Uh, this one was on the bestseller list for a couple of years. If I, can, if I can summarize it in broad strokes, Atul Gawande writes out of his experience as a physician about how our perspective shifts or how it can shift when we come to understand ourselves as finite beings, as limited beings when we come to understand ourselves as mortal. He writes about how that subtle shift, that inevitable understanding, can begin to focus our attention on what really matters. Gwanda writes about this out of his experience with patients and families as they think about and consider medical treatment. But maybe, maybe we've experienced something like this in the regular course of life as we grow in age and in wisdom. Some of the things that seem to matter very much, you know, they just don't seem that important anymore. And some things that we may not have tended to as carefully start to move to the center of our daily living. They, they've done studies on this. As we grow in age, we tend to move our focus more and more from doing to the more comprehensive work of being. From the hectic rat race of life to sitting quietly, to doing slowly and meaningfully and savoring. We tend to be less obsessed with achievement and more mindful of and interested in things that bring meaning. Less worried about the future, more fully here in the present. Less attention on having and getting and winning. More attention on everyday pleasures and relationships and on Psychologist Laura Parsonson is one of the leading researchers on this, and her studies show that as we grow in age and make this shift, we tend to be more content, 
more content in a broader range of circumstances. As we age, we tend to experience more positive emotions. We tend to be less susceptible to anxiety and anger. We do experience hardship, to be sure. But in the good and in the bad, we tend to find living life from day to day more emotionally satisfying. And this shift, this growing awareness isn't limited to just the experience of aging. And Tulva Wande also writes about folks who have had near-death experiences and the folks who are living with life-threatening diagnosis and about how this, this same shift seems to happen. As we live life and come to understand ourselves as mortal, life becomes more precious. And we begin to think differently about what really matters. A tool that one day has moved this to the center of his work with his patients, and particularly with those who have life-threatening illnesses and who are trying to wade through the side among what medical treatments to undergo. Do they enter into chemotherapy to another round or an experimental treatment? Atul Kawande explains that in those moments, he used to think the main question was, do we fight or do we give up? But he's now realized that really the more important question is, what are we fighting for? What are we living for? In some of these conversations, he has added an important question. Go on to ask the things he's always asked. He asks his patients of what they understand about their diagnosis, what their fears are, what their goals are, and then he adds this. What does a good day look like for you? He helps his patients structure their days on what really matters the most of them. What does a good day look like for you? And the answers are as different and specific as the person answering. One man said, it's a good day if I can eat chocolate ice cream and watch football on TV. Gwanda's own father, also a physician, as he was working through an array of his own treatment physicians, said very clearly, what matters the most to me is being able to be at the family and to enjoy a meal and conversation with my family. And so they structured his treatments in his day so that he could do just that as long as he had. Gawande treated a piano teacher who said that what gave meaning to her days was teaching piano to children. And so he helped her make decisions that let her continue that, to teach piano as long as she could and to have a recital for her students to have a recital of children whom she had taught who were now growing and making music all over the world. The one day has found that this one question, what does a good day look like for you, has helped people again and again name and claim what really matters. And in hard circumstances and with hard choices to live lives of deep meaning every day they have. So here's the question that rises up in me. If this is such a life-changing, life-giving, life-affirming question, what does a good day look like for you? Why don't we start asking it now? Why don't we ask that question now and then start living our days like that now? Living not driven by the latest distraction or by the latest 
email or by an endless to-do list, not driven by anger or anxiety or fear, but instead living for and structuring our days around what really matters. What does a good day look like? Why not live that day today and tomorrow and the next day? So, what does all this have to do with the Last Supper? Well, the story takes place on the night before Jesus dies. More than at any other point in the Gospels, Jesus' own mortality is before him. The Word has become flesh and dwelt among us. Jesus has come to live life with us, the fullness of it, all the joy, all the sorrow, all the anger, all the love and living gathered a community, formed friendships, begun a movement. Jesus has worked day in and day out to bring good news to the poor, to bind up the brokenhearted, to let the captive go free. He has healed the sick and comforted those who mourn. He has challenged political and religious authorities. He has called power to account. And here he is on the night before he knows that those political and religious authorities will come for him. Here he is on the night before he dies, and in this upper room, in these moments, Jesus embodies an answer to this question we've been thinking about. What does a good day look like for you? Standing in the awareness of his own finitude, Jesus gives us a glimpse of what he thinks a good day looks like. We get to see what Jesus chooses. Jesus chooses to gather his friends at the table. Jesus could be anywhere with anyone. He could be out among the crowds teaching and preaching with every last breath, or he could just tuck tail and go home. He's done what he could, now he could just go and hide out and wait for the authorities to come. But no, he gathers his friends, these disciples, he chooses to lean into relationship and connection and love. Jesus chooses to gather them for a meal. He's been eating with sinners and tax collectors for his whole ministry, showing the world in every embodied way that everyone is welcomed to the table. And Jesus doesn't stop on this night. Jesus gathers them for a meal. And not just any meal. He gathers them for the Passover meal so they can remember and celebrate together God's liberating love, God's love that saves us from everything that would do us harm. And then the meal starts, and we realize what a motley crew this is. As the evening unfolds, we will have at the table one who will betray Jesus, one who will deny Jesus, and a bunch, just about every one of them, who just at the most poignant moment will start to argue about who among them is greatest. And in the midst of all this, Jesus chooses to sit with them in the broad expanse of forgiveness. He chooses to sit with these friends, friends he knows will wrong him. And he chooses to spend this last supper with them awash in forgiveness and mercy and love. 
And then when they begin to argue about which of them is greatest, Jesus continues to teach. He's taught them so many things, but here on this last night with them, Jesus chooses to teach them again about power. He says again what he has said and lived, that power over others is never the way. Life is not about being the greatest or about having power over anyone else. It is about love and having power with and power for. Life is about taking a place among the least and standing together for love and healing and peace. And then, in the quiet of that moment, as they're contending and their striving comes to us, Jesus chooses to serve. The one who has just broken bread saying, this is my body. The one who has just poured out the cup saying, this is my life poured out for you. The one who has lived with them and healed them and taught them and fed them and loved them. This Jesus says to them, you know what the world looks like, how those in power spend their days. I am among you as one who serves. I'm among you as one who serves. In his last day, Jesus chooses to love them still. Loving them and serving them with acts of tender mercy. At this last supper, on the night before he dies, Jesus chooses to love them into living. To love them into living lives of deep connection and purpose. Jesus chooses to love them into living in hope and healing and love. Jesus gives them and us a glimpse of resurrection. A glimpse of life lived out in the new creation about to be birthed in resurrection. Annie Dillard says, how we live our days is how we live our lives. Kate Bowler puts it like this. The structure of a good day is simply this. Our biggest loves find their way in. God, friends, meaning, family. God has created us to choose to live days like this. And God in Jesus Christ has shown up and shown us what good days look like. From the very beginning, God has created us in love to live lives of love. God has created us to have freedom and agency in the world to live and to choose our life. To create and nurture family and friendship and community. To work for the well-being of the most vulnerable in our midst. To live and to experience lives of tender mercy. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word became flesh and dwells in us, full of grace and truth, loving and blessing the world. This summer, we are encountering these scriptures and thinking about how we live our imperfect lives well. Our fragile, mortal, vibrant lives. The invitation this week is simply the invitation of this question. The invitation is to stand in this experience of communion. God in the midst of us, nourishing, blessing, forgiving, connecting, serving. To stand in the midst of this. Asking, what does a good day look like for me 
for those I love, and for the whole world. And in living that question, may we find our way home.